Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Uprising Uncut, a supposedly weekly podcast that uh, I host, I being Sonali Kohatkar. Um, I say supposedly weekly because I've had trouble keeping to that schedule. I was all set to record um, a podcast last Thursday, and I even took notes, copious notes, no, not copious notes, just tiny little notes on my phone. <laughs> to prep for for what to talk about in the podcast and then I felt violently ill like violently I will not give you the details of how ill I felt but just suffice it to say it involved food poisoning anyway (laughs) so uh I just didn't get to to uh, catch up after that so I just figured I'd wait a whole week um and uh talk extremely belatedly about the Super Bowl um my last week's podcast had I recorded it would have just been a few days after the Super Bowl and of course this one is now a week and a half after but still it's just important enough that I must mention it I was invited by some friends to go to a Super Bowl party these are not people who are like overly um, sports loving or patriotic or just into that sort of thing they just you know it was sort of touted as well it's a good excuse to get together and so uh, my my family and I went my husband and my two kids and I and these are very close friends of ours so we went and uh, it was really interesting it was my very no it wasn't my first time it was the second time I ever was in a room when the tv was turned on during the live Super Bowl game the first time being um, I believe I was in either graduate school (coughs) or college um and I, and I went because some friends made me go. Uh, and I actually remember when I was an undergraduate, um, I was a college student in Texas, at the University of Texas at Austin, and I had kind of been introduced to the wonders of Tex-Mex, which was a very new experience for me. Um, I was very young. I was 16 when I started college, and it was my first time in the United States. I was all by myself. My whole family was on the other side of the world. Um, and so, you know, Mexican food was was a very new experience for me, Tex-Mex in particular. And I remember when I heard about the Super Bowl and everybody getting excited, my first thought was that maybe it was just some sort of festival of food you know because it's a bowl bowl is generally a dish that holds foods and I imagine you know maybe it was just something to do with a giant bowl of queso or (laughs) chips and dip anyway um didn't know much about football or the Super Bowl didn't even know the Super Bowl had anything to do with football for many years after that and I remember when my husband and I moved to to Pasadena, where we now live years ago, we, you know, every now and then we'd find ourselves walking around in our neighborhood. We'd like to take evening walks around the neighborhood as the sun was setting. And we'd be like, wow, where where's everybody today? God, the neighborhood is entirely, um, you know, empty. There's just nobody outside. And then we'd periodically hear screams coming in unison from several houses all at once. And we would deduce that there was some popular sporting event or some kind of event that everybody is watching and and, you know we'd go and look it up online be like oh it's a Super Bowl today anyway so (laughs) so we went to a Super Bowl party for the first time this year and my goodness I was kind of blown away by I'd always read about how the Super Bowl is this epitome of American commercial sports commercially sponsored sports Uh, but I didn't realize how infused it was with militarism and patriotism which, of course, go hand in hand. So it was just this very, I mean, of course, I've, I've heard about, you know, some famous singer usually singing the 
Star Spangled Banner at, at the game, which to me is kind of stupid because this marriage of sports and, and nationalism is, um, it seems obvious, but it's not necessary. And yet it's always assumed that they go hand in hand. Uh, but yeah, I got to see some of it firsthand this time and it was kind of mind blowing and, and, and kind of vomit inducing <laughs> to say the least. Um, and then I, I, I was excited about the, the Super Bowl performance because um, yeah, everybody was anticipating Beyonce would be doing her a new song formation whose video is some kind of a you know fairly strong statement against police violence and also I really like Bruno Mars um, who was also performing I don't particularly care for Coldplay um, whose recent video featuring Beyonce set in India pissed me off but um, and you know what was really funny I actually thought Bruno Mars stole that show but nobody mentioned him as I was watching the Super Bowl halftime, I thought, my goodness, Bruno Mars totally shines. He's so relaxed. He's so confident. He's got swagger. He's got style. He's, you know, sings and dances great. He's, he's awesome. He stole that show. Beyonce looked a little nervous, a um, little out of place. And the Coldplay guy, oh, my God, forget about him. I mean, he just he looked he looked really out of place. Um, but of course, the next day, all the talk was about Beyonce and, and like nobody even mentioned Bruno Mars, which I thought was a pity. Um, I do love Beyonce. I didn't like the fact that my eight-year-old child and all of his friends who were all about eight or nine were sitting in front of the TV while she was, you know, shaking her butt in her teeny, 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 tiny um, costume that, you know, so I didn't like that part of it. Um, I'm not a prudist, just I don't like my eight-year-old boy to see women in that light at such a young age. That is besides the point and, you know, um, doesn't impact the statement that she had been trying to make. Anyway, I don't really want to get into the Beyonce thing because so much has been said about it and I frankly haven't decided how I feel about it other than to say that overall, I'm glad she's doing what she's doing because she is bringing a consciousness about issues that we just don't you know see in the mainstream media um from from a person of her coming from a person of her stature is is important that's that's about all else i'll say about that um so yes the super bowl that was really interesting the other thing that i wanted to talk about last week um was the book interview that I did with Steve Phillips. In fact, I just wrote my Telesur uh, op-ed um, about about this book. I, um, I I write a weekly column for Truthdig, but I also write monthly for Telesur English. Um, which uh, and and so I wrote this book. I wrote this. <laughs> I wish I wrote a book. I wrote this uh, op-ed for them based on a book that I did an interview of um, late last week, and it's a really interesting book. So the book is called Brown is the New White. And goodness, I've forgotten the subtitle to it. So I'll see if I can look it up while I'm talking to you guys. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. I'm I was looking at the website just earlier and as I was writing the article. Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Really, really interesting book. And, and what Steve Phillips does um, is he tackles the numbers of progressive voters in the country and concludes that because of the racial transformation of this country, simply because people of color are having babies and dying slower, having babies faster and dying slower than their white counterparts, and because of, of course, of immigration, um, we have a racial transformation. We're supposed to be a majority-minority country by 2044. That's in 30 years. What Steve Phillips discovers is that if you count 
progressive people of color together with progressive whites in the voting public, by his calculations, 51% of the voting public tends towards progressive values, which is huge. It's huge because the two major political parties have basically ignored progressives for many, many years. Um, the go-to demographic, the, the demographic to be feared, to be revered, to be polled, investigated, invested in, has been white swing voters. But uh, Steve Phillips make the, makes a case that there's just a different time now that we live in and that the Democratic Party in particular ignores voters of color and progressive white voters at their peril and has wasted you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in wooing and polling white swing voters. So um, it, was, it was a really interesting book, and, and you can check out the op-ed by the time this uh, podcast drops. You'll, uh, it, should, it should have been published. It's going to be published on Friday morning, um, Friday the 19th of February. But uh, you know, the, where I differ with Steve Phillips is he, he tends to see the Democratic Party as, as deserving of progressive votes. I mean, he is realistic about the fact that the Democratic Party is essentially part of the establishment. Uh, but I think there's an assumption that's, that he makes that everybody who votes Democratic is progressive. And I, and I don't think that's true. I think most people who vote Democratic are progressive and wish the Democratic Party would actually earn their votes, wish the Democratic Party was actually more aligned with their views. But I think there's still a good number of progressive, I mean, of uh, Democratic voters that like the Democratic Party to be exactly where it is. Um, Pro-Wall Street and also pro-abortion. You know, those uh, so-called fiscal conservatives and social liberals. Um, You know, the the ones who, who are strong supporters of gay marriage but who really don't like the idea of free healthcare or any kind of economic redistribution and you know, other breaking up of the big banks. So, so I think there's a little danger in that. But still, I think it's a, it's a really important thesis. Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. That's the name of the book. Um, and I, and I, I thought it was really powerful. I mean, what it did was it reminded me of, um, of, of a proposal that I wrote for a radio show at KPCC. So for those of you who are Southern Californians, um, KPCC is the top public, so-called public, I say so-called public because it's an NPR affiliate, uh, but it of course received lots, it receives lots of corporate underwriting, but it's supposed to be the top public radio station in Southern California. And four years ago, almost to the day four years ago, um, and by the way, this is the first time I'm admitting this publicly anywhere. This was basically something that I wasn't supposed to be letting on that I was doing to either my employer or to others at KPCC. But, you know, it's been four years and the people that I was interacting with at KPCC are no longer there. Um, and so I wrote uh, I wrote this program proposal for KPCC because, you know, I was trying to get out of KPFK for various reasons. And, uh, and I you know, everyone sort of, I think, realizes that KPCC, including KPCC themselves, realize that their uh, hosts of uh, the hosts of their sort of regular shows are just too white or white sounding. Um, Their reporters are extremely diverse, by the way, (laughs) and pretty cool. I I know a few of them. Um, But uh, their, you know, their, their show hosts are mostly white. And this was, by the way, this was before A. Martinez was was hired. And uh, so I wrote this program proposal for KPCC entitled Beyond Diversity, where I basically tried to make a case to them why they should have a new show hosted by me five days a week 
that would cover news and politics with cent you know with with its center on racial justice and with guests that are far more diverse than the guests that normally appear on NPR or NPR affiliates um, and with a host that's entirely different which would have been me and I laid out my case for why if they want to woo prog- uh, if they want to woo listeners of color if they want to get a greater access to the very diverse communities in Southern California. You know, Southern California is one of the most diverse parts of the United States, if not the most diverse part of the United States. And of course, KPCC, being a mostly white sounding station, has a mostly white listenership, and they realize that this is a problem. So I said, if you want a browner, a blacker, a more diverse listenership, one really quick way to do it isn't to simply put brown and black people that reflect the same accents and politics of the white folks that you have on, but to actually get progressive brown and black folks simply because the majority of brown and black folks are progressive. And so I like quoted all these Pew research polls kind of showing how contrary to, you know, general wisdom, um, black folks are very pro-gay marriage, um, as are even Latinos and, and Asians. Um, Asians and, and, and um, African-Americans are also pro-humane uh, immigration. Um, they're, you know, most people of color are for uh, more radical economic policies. They're anti-war. They care about climate change and the environment. And they're mostly, you know, pretty highly educated. They care about education. So I made this case and wrote this proposal um, to basically tell them that, listen, if you want to diversify your listenership, you should have a program like, you know, what I'm suggesting, which was essentially the kind of program that I do on KPFK. Needless to say, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't like it. They didn't care for it very much. And, um, you know, I think, I think they're going to regret it. I don't know if they'll specifically regret not accepting my proposal. They probably don't even remember, uh, the proposal. Um, but I think they'll sort of, you know, I think they'll regret not not going in this direction. Um, so that was that was something that uh, that I remembered when I was reading Steve Phillips's book. All right, so uh, lots of interesting things happening this week. Uh, the Nevada caucuses and the South Carolina primary races are very, um, you know, close by, just a few days away, and. Actually, I don't want to talk about those two things except to say that in Nevada, Latino voters matter. In South Carolina, black voters matter. It'll be really interesting to see which way these voters go in light of the fact that a couple of new polls have shown that either Bernie Sanders is uh, has cut deeply into Hillary Clinton's um, lead or in a Fox News poll, he has actually surpassed her by a couple of percentage points. All right. These elections are massively distracting us from a lot of things. One of them being the war in Syria. I've talked about the war in Syria before and I've written about the war in Syria before. And actually last week, my article on Truth Dig was about the Syria war. It's it's really horrible what's happening. It's and, and, and it, it's more horrible that nobody in the US media is paying attention to it. So there's this incredible and very frightening battle playing out in Aleppo, a major city in Syria that is being considered a stronghold of the Islamic State. Russia has gotten involved and has, you know, um, essentially deployed ground troops. They've also got airstrikes going that have been shown to kill civilians. The U.S. has airstrikes. 
um, and is now considering ground troops. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, my you know, country of birth, are um, who are currently, by the way, also bombing Yemen to bits, are now um, openly considering uh, joining the uh, Syria war with ground troops. And, and the point of my article was that um, all of these complex and various sides in Syria, I mean, you can basically lose track of who is involved in the Syria war so easily because there are now so many players, both internal and external. The one thing that they all have in common, external and internal, and I don't mean all internal players, but at least some of the internal players, such as, of course, the Assad government or the Assad government, I should say, and the Islamic State, is that they're all killing Syrians. They're, that's the one thing they have in common. They're all killing ordinary Syrian civilians. And it's just it's just bloody heartbreaking, the carnage that has happened and how much it's been ignored. Any other um, country, with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, the, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Wait a minute, is it Congo or the DRC? Because I always confuse the two. Anyway, with the exception of an impoverished African country, if it was happening in any other country, what is happening in Syria, um, the world would be outraged. And, and the reason I bring up the African exception is because, of course, we've had absolutely horrific massacres, mass killings in uh, various African countries over the years, and, and the media has often ignored them while they've been happening and sometimes um, acknowledge that they've happened after the fact such as in Rwanda anyway uh, but in Syria we're just you know a quarter of a million people dead over five years quarter of a million people dead it's so sad um, that photo of the toddler Alan Kurdi who washed up whose body washed up on the shores of a Turkish resort last year um, was so powerful and, and haunted so many people and it feels like people have just forgotten about this boy and in my in my research writing this article for truth dig i came upon the story of another boy an eight-year-old boy which you know saw his photo i saw his face and it reminded me of my own boy uh, my eight-year-old child um you know little beautifully caramel colored boy with short dark hair and dark eyes and two stumps where his legs had once been and this eight-year-old actually I think he's nine years old a boy named Noor was just playing outside his home in in his Syrian hometown when a cluster bomb fell and he lost both his legs and he told his parents that he wanted the world to see what had happened to him and so he insisted that they photograph him and publicize it and it was published in the UK media it was not even touched upon by the u.s media i didn't find anything about this little boy noor anywhere in the u.s media and his photos should have become the symbol of our collective shame that we're not handling the syria crisis now of course people say well how do you handle it do you want the u.s to go in and bomb him and stop no of course not the u.s has never first of all carried out any war in anyone's interest but its own and even if it did have anyone's interest at heart, throwing bombs at a situation where lots of other people are throwing bombs isn't going to do shit, right? And so my point in this uh, truistic piece that I wrote last week was that any global forum that we might have had to solve such problems before they became such huge problems have been undermined by 
the United States and other big powers to an extent, but mostly the United States. And of course, I'm talking about the United Nations, which is a very flawed institution, but it's flawed why? It's flawed because of the United States constantly undermining it. And where the U.S. has not undermined it, it has found to take on um, occupations that look similar to colonial occupations, such as in Haiti and, and, and other parts of the world. The United Nations was supposed to be that global diplomatic forum where negotiations would happen without or could happen without bloodshed. And the big powers of this world have worked very hard to cut its you know, teeth, to, to basically, to, not to make it toothless, to make it a toothless institution, to govern with a undemocratic so-called security council that has all the power, whereas the much, much more democratic general assembly, where the majority of the world has the power, um, has, um, has very little voice. And so what's happening in Syria is the result of a failure of the world to tackle such crises. And the more countries that get, get involved, Turkey too, by the way, <laughs> Turkey, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Russia, Iran, the United States, the Islamic State, and the Assad government. These are, you know, I think all of the players. The more countries and outside forces that get involved, the worse the situation is, is going to get. And I, I don't have a short-term answer anymore, except that the United States could, using its diplomatic muscle, and Russia could, back the fuck off stop arming people stop arming the government stop arming the rebels um and what to do about the islamic state you know islamic state many say is fallout from the iraq war how do you put the genie back into the lamp how do you how do you put together something that has already broken into a million pieces i don't know um but i know that we can't ignore it either and we're ignoring the, we're ignoring the uh, Syria war, and it's it breaks my heart. Um, the other, the other thing that I wanted to talk about um, is of course the fact that Antonin Scalia died. That was the big, big, big news. I'm actually kind of surprised at how fast that news has died down. Uh, first of all, I'm, and I'm not talking about the fact of his death. You know, he died. He was an old guy. He died. People die all the time. Uh, there's been all sorts of conspiracy theories about, oh, my goodness, who caused him to die? He died. <laughs> for the, unluckily for conservatives, it was an extremely inconvenient timing for his death. And, of course, they howled immediately about the fact that he died before Obama finished his presidency. Um so Obama has a chance to to appoint a to name a new Supreme Court justice, but the Senate, dominated by Republicans, is of course going to completely undermine him and do everything they can to to step in his way. Um, it was really interesting, is how important the Supreme Court nomination is because there's so many cases. This was supposed to be like one of the heaviest Supreme Court terms in terms of caseloads, in a long time. And, and even those cases where Justice Scalia had possibly made a decision, but it hadn't been published yet, 
those decisions now don't stand, especially if there were five to four votes with him in the majority. The vote count only stands when it is made public. So if the justices had voted but were waiting on a case, but were waiting to write an opinion, after Scalia's death, a five to four decision now becomes four four even though he voted before his death. So a bunch of cases are on hold. And what happens, as far as I understand it, and of course, I'm no lawyer, but I did uh, did do a, a lot of research on this and, and did an interview with Ian Milheiser of Think Progress, who wrote about it and who's a lawyer. The upshot is that those cases go back down to lower courts. And um, lower courts tend to have, apparently, are more dem- you know more dominated by Democratic Party appointees. So it's, it's really interesting to see what's going to unfold. Everyone's sort of waiting for Obama to announce his nomination. Some have said uh, this one particular judge named Shrina, Shrikanth Srinivasan. Um, so one of my countrymen. <laughs> um, uh, but very soon, uh, others have pointed out that, that Mr. Srinivasan... Um, had some some ill you know just kind of some unethical dealings that involved aligning with Exxon Mobil against uh, Indonesian activists. Um, but uh, regardless of who he puts forward, of course, what's going to happen is that the Republican Party will just not uh, confirm the appointee, and this could drag on for over a year. This could drag on till there's not just new president in office, but a new congressional makeup. And the Republicans are taking a big gamble here because, you know, better the devil you know, if they accept one of Obama's nominees, if this nominee is not overtly, you know, anti-conservative, they might be better off doing that than waiting to see, you know, someone more radical on the bench, a radical being put forward and, and, um, appointed or, or confirmed by by a different Senate or even a different president. Anyway, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um, and and I think this is a huge huge story um, that that is uh, that that needs a lot of attention. And this is where, by the way, presidential politics do matter. Right? There's very few. Uh, there, there's 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 spaces in the margins of policies and other things where a Democrat makes a difference over a Republican. The Supreme Court is a really clear-cut place where a Democratic president um, is usually quite different from a Republican president. I say usually because there have been cases, and I can't remember the exact names now, but when I was researching this, I I came across them. There have been cases where a president from a particular party uh, appointed a Supreme Court justice, assuming that that justice aligned with his politics, only to find out that that justice actually voted differently. Because once a Supreme Court justice is on the bench, they're there for life. They don't have to answer to anyone, and that's by design. So, um, So usually... It matters um, what the political party of the nominating president is. And there's only nine justices. So a single justice, a single appointment can can completely change the political landscape of the country. Suffice it to say, however, that we have had a conservative-leaning court for far too many years now. And that has led to a country that is more callous, less compassionate, um, and, and we'll certainly see what happens in the next um, next few months. I mean, I, I feel like whoever is named to the Supreme Court might be almost as important as who, who wins a presidential nomination for which party.
Okay, um, that, I believe, was as much as I wanted to say about that. Oh, yes, one final thing that I wanted to throw out there. I wanted to announce that a uh, very exciting speaker is coming to Southern California, um, where I'm based. Uh, former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis is coming to town, and I have the honor of organizing his only um, Los Angeles appearance. And that's going to be Saturday, April 23rd. It's going to be an afternoon event at the Neighborhood Unitarian Church in Pasadena. I'm very excited about it. And tickets will be going on sale very soon. Um, But do save the date, all right? uh, Yanis Varoufakis is amazing. Um, uh, He's a total rock star, superstar. um, And I mean that in the sort of least... Uh, sexy way possible <laughs> a romantic way possible you know he's just he's an awesome rock star slash superstar uh economist um the fact that he rides a motorcycle is totally besides the point <laughs> and he of course became famous world famous um when he was appointed by greek prime minister alexis Tsipras of the Syriza party last year in greece um and i was very excited about that appointment because i had had the chance to interview yanis a couple of times by the by phone because he was east coast based um but he's going to be coming through la and um, he's going to be doing a speaking event about a brand new book that um will tackle europe's politics as well as the u.s's economic future so i think it's going to be a very momentous uh, book and and I'm thrilled that I'll be presenting his event here in Southern California, Saturday, April 23rd. Do um, keep that date, and I on my future podcast will certainly tell you where and how you can get tickets. And that does it for my half an hour rant of the week. I hope I can make it next Thursday unless something comes up. Thank you so much for listening. Do tell your friends about Uprising Uncut. If they're fans of, of Uprising, my show on KPFK, um, you get a, a different flavor of political analysis. Um, you know, a kind of picture me in my pajamas with a glass of wine in the evening <laughs> uh, instead of all dressed up in front of a microphone early in the morning. So you get a very different side of, of my analysis on Uprising Uncut. So do share it with your friends, uh, repost links to Facebook and Twitter and blah, 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 and all of that shit. All right. Thanks all. Bye.